We will be in Acts 27 this morning, and if you need a Bible, you're going to want a Bible. If you don't have one, raise your hand, Bud will loan you one. Because we're going to be in Acts 27, but we're going to do some other things as well, because I've had a lot of people, and I mean a lot, a lot of people, ask me over the last couple of weeks, what is going on with Israel, and what are the prophetic implications of Israel? Brother in the room messaged me this week, please tell me you're going to do some kind of prophecy update. And, and, and I tried to share a few thoughts along those lines last week, but the feedback that I got was it was too much and it was too fast, which I get because I wasn't planning on doing it at all. It was sort of off the cuff. So in addition to Acts 27, I also want to take some time this morning to take another shot at what I tried to do last week, maybe with a little more context and a few more visuals. At the same time, I don't want to lose momentum with, with our journey through the footsteps of Paul. We're already going to take a week, not off, we're going to be in Acts, but we're going to kind of camp out on one particular concept while the ladies are away so that they don't lose their place with where we are. But the Lord didn't give me peace about taking two weeks. So anyway, long story less long, I'm going to try to do both. I'm going to try to unpack Acts 27 this morning and look at what's going on in Israel through a prophetic lens. And then I'm going to try to make a connection because, believe it or not, I think there actually is one. If you're willing to take a big jump with me in about half an hour, I'll let you know when. Plan for the morning. We're going to take like 15 minutes and unpack Acts 27, which, which should be doable because it's narrative. There aren't any real interpretive challenges. Then we'll take about 15 minutes and, and review what's going on in Israel. And then we'll take 15 minutes maybe 20, and take a shot at connecting the two. And that's going to be the big jump part. I'll tell you when we get there. Acts 27 is where we're starting. Acts 26 is where we left off. And when we left off, Paul was sharing his testimony before Agrippa, which he didn't need to do. He was a Roman citizen. He'd invoked his right to appeal to Nero. But Agrippa wanted to talk to him. Festus wanted to get advice from Agrippa on how he should charge Paul, what what he should tell Nero he's sending Paul to be judged for. And Paul's not going to pass up a chance to share his testimony. So, so that was the end of 25 and all of chapter 26. At the end of all of which, at the end of that conversation, Agrippa confirms what everybody already knew. He confirms to Festus what Festus understood. He had no legal basis to hold Paul. The problem is that Paul had already appealed to Rome, so the wheels are already in motion, and he didn't have a choice but to send them. So chapter 27 opens, Paul's on his way. Chapter 7, 20, 27, verse 1, it was decided that we should sail to Italy. We tells us that Luke is back in the game. He's going to make the journey with Paul. He's willing to travel with them. And when it was decided we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul verse 1, and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. That sounds important. It was. It was an elite detachment stationed in Syria that reported directly to Rome. So entering a ship of Adermidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail around the coasts of Asia. Adramidium was the ship's home port. It's not on the map, but it was up here kind of opposite Thessalonica. <clears throat> and along the coast probably means this, this was a ship making what we would call a milk run, kind of just kind of hugging the coast up here back and forth, going from port to port. <clears throat> Julius is probably just grabbing the first ship going in the right direction, hoping to come across a bigger ship in a port somewhere on its way to Rome. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. He's one of the men who had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem back in Acts 20. He also shows up in Colossians and Philemon, which tells us he was a part of Paul's life throughout uh, Paul's later years, throughout the, the ministry that he had in Rome. Verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon. That is on the map, that's just... 70 miles up the coast. Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Because Paul's a Roman citizen, and if he's talked to Paul, he knows that Paul wants to go to Rome. He's not a threat to escape. When we put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So instead of taking a straight shot across the Mediterranean, they hugged the coast, trying to let Cyprus buffer the, the prevailing winds from the west that would be opposing their journey. 
Verse 5, when we'd sail over the city, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Alexandrian as in from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Egypt, down here, was the primary source of grain for Rome in Paul's day. And ships carrying grain from Alexandria to Rome were under the protection of the Roman Senate. So this was a cargo ship, but it also had semi-official status, which meant the centurion would have a certain amount of authority on the ship. That comes into play later. When we had sailed slowly many days because of the wind and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus, an island that's 130 miles away or so, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete. So same kind of maneuver as before. They're trying to keep Crete between them and the prevailing winds. <clears throat> Passing with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. At which point the captain of the ship faced a choice, keep going or shelter there for the winter. And Paul had an opinion on the subject. When much time had been spent, because it took them longer to get that far than they were expecting, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, verse 10, Men, I perceive this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives, if we keep going, is the idea. The fast here would refer to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the, the only fast that Jewish men were required at this point to observe. So that tells us it's late September, early October, depending on the year. That's when Yom Kippur falls. And in Paul's day, ships did not sail the Mediterranean, at least not the open sea, from mid-November to mid-February. And even anything after mid-September was dicey. No fly zone began in mid-November, but from mid-September on, it was a judgment call. And Paul, who has spent some time being shipwrecked before, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, Paul at that point said that he'd been in three shipwrecks. Paul says, hey, let's play it safe. Let's hunker down here for the winter. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul probably figures, Paul, you just want to prolong the inevitable. You want to put off getting to Rome as long as you can. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. So Phoenix, it's, it's, it's the other end of Crete. And a, what's the difference? It's not that far away. But it's as, as Luke says it's the angle of the harbor and the protection that one harbor versus another would give them against winter storms. When the south wind blew softly, verse 13, supposing they'd obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. They seemed like they caught a break in the weather. Let's make a run for it. But not long after, a tempestuous, stormy headwind arose called Eurycladon. Eurycladon is a mashup of Latin and Greek, and basically it means northeast. So they're caught in a winter storm that when I lived in New Jersey, we'd call a nor'easter, literally. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. They, they, they can't make any progress. The wind is too strong, so they're going where the wind is taking them. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, it's not on the map, but it's just 25 miles or so off of Crete, um, we secured the skiff with difficulty. The skiff would be a rowboat, a lifeboat that they'd tow behind them. Uh, it's filled with water at this point, and it's just weighing them down. It's making it even harder to navigate. When they'd taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. So they're trying everything they can to, to survive this storm. They're trying to undergird the structural integrity of the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis Sands, they struck sail and so were driven. Sirtis Sands, the, the, the two areas of Sirtis are down here on the north, northern African coast. Basically, they're concerned about sandbars. Um, and, and, and getting shipwrecked. It was that, that was a known graveyard of ships at the time. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, storm-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. They're trying everything to keep floating. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, 
which meant they couldn't navigate even if, if, if they were able to. And no small tempest beat on us. The storm showed no sign of letting up. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Maybe the passive voice there, maybe not by Luke or Paul, but, but by the ones they were traveling with. But after long abstinence from food, because everyone was seasick, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Which, which sounds a little bit like Paul saying, I told you so. In reality, he's saying, hey, now do you believe I know something about sea travel? And, and maybe my opinion might be worth listening to. Because here's my opinion. Now I urge you, verse 22, to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. How can you possibly know that, Paul? Verse 23, well, there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. You have to squint hard at this, but what did Paul just say? God had already promised to get Paul to Rome, right? It's not a given that other people on the ship would also get there. Paul could, God could get Paul to Rome any way that he wanted to. But it has been granted to Paul that those on the ship, 275 other people we learn later, will also survive. Granted, you grant something in response to what? In response to a request. Paul has been praying. Not just that he would get through safely, but that everyone he's traveling with would get through safety. God's answered your prayer, the angel said. You're all going to make it. Therefore, Paul says, take heart, man, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. God told me this. God does what he says. However, here's the thing, we must run aground on a certain island. We're going to get there. We're going to lose the ship. Now, when the 14th night had come, verse 27, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, which isn't really what... Luke means. Adriatic Sea's up there. This is the Gulf of Adria, which is this area there, which is where they were, which makes more sense. <clears throat> they, they sensed they were getting close to land. Sensed how? Changing current? Sound of waves breaking on the shore? We don't know. But they took soundings, verse 28, and found it to be 20 fathoms. Six feet to a fathom, it's 120 feet. Sounds deep, but not so much if you're in a sailing vessel. And when they'd gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So it's getting shallower, which sounds like good news. It's really bad news. That's a recipe for shipwreck. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. You might underline that, verse 29. We're actually going to spend the weekend that the ladies are away. We're going to talk about those four anchors in greater detail. But let's keep going. Verse 30, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, we're just going to go take care of something, they said. Paul said to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, is this, is this supernatural and divine and God has revealed this to him? Or is Paul just being practical? Hey, they're the guys who know how to sail. If we let them leave we're really going to be in deep trouble. The sailors cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. So they're listening to Paul at this point. Okay, don't let the, don't let the sailors abandon ship. Good plan. Then as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today's the 14th day you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. And that can't be good for anybody. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Paul is standing on the prophecy that God spoke to him. And when he'd said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he'd broken it, he began to eat. Even in the middle of a life-threatening storm, Paul is giving thanks. They were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And we all were 226 persons on the ship. So when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Because that was the only thing they hadn't thrown overboard at that point. That was their cargo. They needed to get the wheat to Rome or they wouldn't get paid. But it's clear to everyone at this point that Paul knows what he's talking about. They might survive, but no way is the ship going to make it. So there's no point in saving the wheat. 
When it was day, verse 39, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach, onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. They, you know, controlled crash as opposed to total shipwreck. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. Just one problem, verse 41, striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. They basically got hung up on a reef. And the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. I mean, there's a lot of hydraulic force going on, right? And as, as those waves crash into a boat that's floating, well, that, the, just the fact that the boat floats dissipates some of the impact of those waves. If the boat is locked in place, it's just wave after wave of force slamming into that fixed object, crushing the ship. So the soldiers' plan, verse 42, was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. As we remember from Acts 16, if a soldier let a prisoner under his charge escape, his life was forfeit. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who, should, who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, basically surfed in. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land just as God has promised. And glancing ahead to chapter 28, we see that they've ended up on the island of Malta, and we'll read more about the adventures that they have on Malta next week. But this is where I want to hit pause, and weird as it seems, I want to talk about Israel for a minute. We're coming back to Paul. We're going to get back on the ship. But just as God gave Paul prophecies about his future, verse 23 this morning and a bunch of other places in recent weeks, just as God gave Paul prophecies about his future, you and I have prophecies in Scripture about our future and about the future of Israel, right? And like I said, at the top of the hour, a lot of people have been asking, what is the current fighting between Israel and Hamas? Where does it fit in prophecy? Does it fit in prophecy? The short answer is, I don't think so. You can't draw a straight line from the conflict that's going on today to anything we read in Scripture. There is no direct connection, not that I've seen and not that I've heard anybody suggest. Is there an indirect connection? Yeah, maybe. The easiest possibility to point at is Isaiah 17.1. Isaiah says, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will become a ruinous heap. Prophecy spoken in 8th century B.C., it's never been fulfilled. Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city of any size, of, of, of that scope at least, in the world. It's been attacked many times. It's never been destroyed on the scale suggested by Isaiah. But last week, Israel threatened exactly that. In the midst of the fighting, Israel sent a message to Syria, stay out of this or will wipe Damascus from the face of the earth, in about that language. And just to underscore their point, they also lobbed some guided missiles at the airport in Damascus, just in case anybody didn't believe them. But what does that mean prophetically? Prophetically, it means that at some point, Damascus is going to be destroyed. <laughs> but that's all it means. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, Isaiah 17.11 is, is a standalone prophecy. It's not connected to anything else prophetically. So when Damascus is destroyed, because it will be, it still won't give us a clue where we are on God's prophetic calendar. It just will be a reminder that there is still prophecy to be fulfilled. And when prophecy is fulfilled, it's always fulfilled literally. The Bible has more to say about the the future history of the world, things that haven't happened yet, than it had to say about the first coming of Jesus. The Bible has more to say about the second coming than it has to say about the days that the Jesus walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And when those things play out, they will play out literally the way that Scripture describes. So, so people look at what's going on and they say, oh, Isaiah 17.1, and, and that, that might be true. But what does it mean? We don't know. The second indirect connection between current events in Israel and biblical prophecy, another one that a lot of people are talking about, is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
and most of you know what I'm, where, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. It's the Battle of Gog and Magog. It's the prophecy of a surprise attack against Israel by a coalition of nations which are not... Somebody improved the art since first service. Whoever you were, Jesus loves you and thank you. Because <laughs> we couldn't read this first service. But now we can. And we see that it's Russia and Iran and Turkey and the former Soviet states, Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and so forth, along with uh, some of the North African nations coming against Israel. First things first, because people are genuinely confused about this, we are not in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. We really aren't. But, but Ezekiel talks about a surprise attack, and this was a surprise attack. Israel was really surprised. Yeah. But no Russia, no Turkey, no Iran. Not involved in the fighting. Is, is Russia involved behind the scenes? Yeah, maybe. I know that there was a group of Russian hackers calling themselves Killnet that declared war on Israel last week. So, I mean, is Russia involved behind the scenes? Maybe. Is Iran involved? Probably. But again, when prophecy is fulfilled, it's fulfilled literally. So the lack of Russian, Turkish, Iranian aircraft in the sky or troops on the ground tells us what we're seeing doesn't line up with what we read. Also, we don't see any of the other nations that, that Scripture describes uh, that are aligned with Russia anywhere in the mix. But, but here's the kicker. In describing the surprise attack on Israel, Ezekiel also makes it clear, end of 38, beginning of 39, God wipes out the attackers, and then he takes the fight to their home nations and whoops up on them there. Point being, you can squint at this from every angle. You can, you can, you can look at it from you know, every perspective. We're not seeing Ezekiel 38 and 39. We just aren't. We're not seeing anything close to it playing out in the world today. Not yet, Patrick, but we're getting closer. Maybe. And when I say maybe, I mean, I mean maybe. Iran and Russia have never been tighter. That's true. Putin has never had this much incentive to attack Israel, to distract the world from Ukraine, and to divert the world's munitions from Ukraine. Yeah, Putin potentially has some skin in the game. Saudi Arabia was on the verge of entering into a, a detente of sorts with Israel. Do the Islamic nations of the world want to prevent that? Of course they do. But even given all of that, there's still a danger... Of, of the prophetically inclined among us trying to make way too much out of way too little. Because, and, and this is the point I was trying to make last week, we know a lot less about Ezekiel 38 and 39 than we think we know. We know less than we want to know, and we know less than we try to know. We, we know the players, especially now that we can read the slide. We know Russia, Turkey, Iran. We know uh, the former Soviet states we're a little, people debate about which of the northern African countries correspond to the biblical titles, but we know that some of them are involved. We know the players. And we know the outcome. God wins. <laughs> but we don't know when any of this shows up on God's prophetic calendar. Future History 101. We took a deep dive into this when we were in Romans a few months ago. Our jumping off point was Romans 11.25, Paul reminding us that blindness in part has happened to the Gentiles until the fullness, sorry, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The church age, the, the age of grace that began at Pentecost has an end. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when the last person who will be saved in the age of grace is saved, and no one knows when that is, Father says to the Son, it's time, go get your bride. We call that the rapture of the church, when Jesus comes to collect his bride out of the world. When that happens, God turns his attention back to Israel. That's a period of time called the tribulation. We see it there. Seven years that begins, and, and it's sadly not marked on this graphic, but it begins not with the rapture of the church, but with a treaty, Daniel 9.27, a treaty that Antichrist brokers between Israel and her neighbors. 
Halfway through, we see the abomination of desolation when Antichrist presents himself in the temple and, and expects to be worshipped. And it ends with the second coming. It's a busy seven years. And I'm going fast because, like I said, we took a relatively deep dive into this recently. If you missed that day or you're, you're new since then, or if for any reason I'm freaking you out, grab me after service because I don't want you to be freaked out. Um, there's, this, this isn't... I'm glad to point you to some resources or, or we can sit and talk it through. The reason I'm bringing it up isn't to overwhelm anyone. The reason that I'm, I'm talking about this is to point out we don't know where in that timeline the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war takes place. Many people believe it happens over here before the tribulation. And maybe it's even the, the, that, that, that battle, that conflict is what leads to the treaty that kicks off the tribulation. That, that's possible. There's, there, there, are other, there are other things that, that are suggestive. Ezekiel 39.9 refers to it taking seven years to dispose of the weapons and seven years of the tribulation. So maybe, maybe. It's not a dopey idea at all. On the other hand, some really smart people believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 war is more likely to happen in the first half of the tribulation. Chiefly because Ezekiel 38, and 30, uh, 38 verse 11 says that the attack happens when Israel is dwelling securely in the land. Which certainly isn't now, but it could be after the treaty that begins the tribulation, giving Israel a false sense of security. And my point this morning is not to debate the pros and cons or the nuances of all of the different... My point is to point out we don't know. We also don't. Let, 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 me, let me underscore that. Let's assume for the moment that the battle does occur before the tribulation. Pastor Chuck thought so. Tim LaHaith, the Left Behind series, thought so. Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, thought so. Okay, let, let's assume for the sake of argument that the battle happens before the tribulation. Okay, does it happen before or after the rapture of the church? Because remember, th this is misleading. The kickoff of the tribulation is not the rapture, the kickoff is the treaty. We know the rapture happens before the treaty. It happens pre-trib, pre-tribulation. But how pre is pre? Five minutes? Five days? Five months? Five years? The Bible absolutely does not say. There's a scenario. Does, does the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, the battle of Gog and Magog, does that happen after the rapture? But before the tree? It's possible. And if I've completely lost you, I'm sorry, and it's okay. And my only point about talking about any of this is to, is to say one thing. We cannot look at Russia, Iran, and Turkey as any kind of touchstone. We can't look at them as any kind of calendar to tell us how close the rapture is. Because if we could, what would we be doing? We'd be looking at headlines instead of Jesus. And that doesn't sound like the kind of thing God would want us to do. If Russia and Iran have a falling out tomorrow and this Russia-Iran-Turkey coalition some, suddenly seems years away, doesn't mean the rapture can't happen next week. And if Russia and Iran and Turkey begin joint military exercises tomorrow, it doesn't mean the rapture will happen next week. It could be years away. For that matter, the rapture could happen tomorrow and the battle of Gog and Magog could be years away. The two events are not connected. Okay, but Patrick, don't you think we're getting close anyway? I mean, okay, fine. Russia and Iran aside. What about all the things that Jesus told us to watch for in Matthew 24? Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famine and pestilence and economic upheaval. Doesn't that mean the church age has to be about done? It might. But here's the thing. For the last 2,000 years, believers have thought the same thing. And for the last 2,000 years, they've been wrong. That's how the doctrine of imminence works. The rapture of the church is always imminent. There's nothing that has to precede it. No war, no signs. Not in, Let me blow your mind. Not even Israel restored to the land. Israel restored to the land had to happen before the tribulation for obvious reasons. 
But the rapture is pre-tribulation, and we don't know how pre-pre is. Point being, rapture could happen at any time. Could have happened at any time. Which is why even without the things that we look at, oh, global currency, oh, the deep fake capability that Antichrist is going to use, mark of the beast technology, it's here, Russian-Iran confederacy, it's coming together. Without any of the things that we point at to say, oh, we're getting close, 50 generations of Christians since Pentecost have lived believing that they might well see the return of Christ. The Thessalonians were, were awaiting it and expecting it so anxiously, they were afraid they missed it. They wrote to Paul, Paul, Paul responds to them in 2 Thessalonians 2 because they thought they'd missed the rapture. So what are you saying, Patrick? We're just supposed to ignore all the stuff that Jesus tells us to watch for? No. Because he told us to watch. But why? So that we would notice them and let them renew our urgency around evacuating the planet. The things that Jesus told us to watch for, the, his purpose was not so that we would use them to try to estimate how much time we have left, but rather that we would be reminded we don't know how much time we have left. This space here, between the dot and the line, that could be hours, it could be years. But however much time it is, our focus needs to be on using that time. Not calculating the time, but using the time really, really well. Redeeming it. Sharing the gospel on the one hand, like the rapture is going to happen this afternoon. Making disciples and equipping the saints on the other hand in case the church is here for another generation or more. What does that look like? This is where we turn back to Acts 27. Remember I said at the top of the hour there was going to, point, going to be a point I was going to ask you to take a big leap with me? We're here. Take, take a moment and stretch. The point of the last 15 minutes was to emphasize we don't know how much time the church has left. Patrick, I already knew that. Okay, I owe you 15 minutes. Call me, I'll buy the coffee, we can talk about whatever you want. We don't, but we, we don't. We don't know how much time the church has left. But however much time it is, the best use of that time is not trying to figure out how much more time there is. The best use of that time is to build the kingdom of God. And believe it or not, I think Paul in Acts 27 offers some really good insight about what that could look like. Here's the leap. If your eyes glazed over when I started talking about prophecy, come back. Because here's the leap that, that I'm going to ask you to make with me. Paul's on a journey, right? He's on a journey that God ordained. He's on a journey that God promised Paul would finish successfully. He would complete it. God promised here this morning and in a bunch of places previously, he would see Paul safely to his destination. Be of good cheer, Paul. You're going to be my witness in Rome and so forth. Isn't that God's promise to you and I as believers? That we will reach our destination, the destination he's promised every one of us. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. God has promised he'll get us to heaven. Just like he promised Paul he'd get him to Rome. This is the parallel I'm going to work with. Are you, are you with me? Did we, did we make the leap together? So being sure of, of, of that promise... What did Paul do? Being sure that God would get him where he said he was going to take him, what are some of the choices, what are some of the decisions that Paul made along the way? Let's, let's use our last 15 minutes to rewind and try to draw some lessons for our journey from Paul's journey. First one we get in the very first sentence. Verses 1 and 2, it was decided that we should sail to Italy. We, me, Luke, Paul, Aristarchus, we're going together. Paul didn't have to do it that way. Paul knew he was going to Rome. 
He was going to get there regardless of who traveled with him, but he wanted to travel with others. He always lived in community. Knowing that, that he was going to make it to his destination, Paul could have been self-focused, self-absorbed. I know where I'm going. I'm going to take a nap. Wake me when we get there. But it, it's interesting. I've said before, if anyone was ever qualified to be a Lone Ranger Christian, it was Paul. And yet we never see him do it. He's always living in community. Why? Encouragement, prayer, accountability, gifting. Paul didn't have all, even Paul didn't have all the gifts. And neither do we. And we don't need to if we do what Paul did and live life together. Let's keep going. Verses 3 and 4, as Paul journeys to his destination, he's not concerned, overly at least, he's not obsessed with the ups and downs along the way. Sometimes as he sojourns through the world, he encountered unexpected favor. Hey, Julius is going to let me go visit my friends. Sometimes he encountered unexpected opposition. Whoa, the wind is really strong for this time of year. Luke doesn't report those things as, as signs or portents. Paul doesn't see them as overly distressing. It's just facts. The Christian life has ups and downs. And, and whether things are trending up or down, Paul always seems to take it in stride, doesn't he? We never see him go all Eeyore. It always rains on my missions trips. Because, because if, 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 if Paul you know, got bummed out by things in the world being the things of the world, he wouldn't have even asked Julius, hey, can I go see my friends? He would have just assumed, yeah, I, I, I could ask him, but he'll say no, so I'm not going to ask him. But he doesn't do that. He asks. We also don't see, on the other, at the other extreme, we don't see Paul get all, all Pollyanna. Everything is all perfect and sunshine and rainbows and unicorns all the time. Because if that were his mindset, that anything that happened that was even slightly contrary, what a single cloud in the sky, would just be devastating. Paul took life as it came. Because he realized this life is not the destination. This life is the journey to the destination. And he kept that perspective. The journey to the destination, here's number three, verses five, six, seven, and eight. The journey didn't always follow direct routes for Paul, just like it doesn't for us. You might have noticed. And yet Paul doesn't get discouraged. We had the map up, you saw Paul, he was all over the place. And yet God had a way of getting him through a really unexpected route exactly where he wanted him to be. Becky told the story this week. She, she posted on social media, and I asked her if I, could, if I could share. You know, She and James went out a year and a half ago to be involved in a church plant. And they were involved for not as long as they expected to be involved. So with, with plans having changed and with ministry sort of not being what they expected, they took a random trip to Texas where they met some people, friends of friends, where... And last week, as, as Mary began a new, a new season at a new school, wouldn't you know, the friends of friends that they met on this trip of Texas, which they wouldn't have taken if ministry had gone according to plan, the friend of the friend wouldn't end up being Mary's homeroom teacher. Point being, God uses delays and detours. He, he engineers them. He engineers roadblocks. He, he takes frustration and failure and he redeems it for his purposes. To put us with the people we need to be with or to put us in front of the people who need to be with us to hear what we have to say. Verse 9, 10, and 11 remind us they don't necessarily listen to what we say. Our message is not always welcome. Even when we know what we're talking about, like Paul did. Sometimes it's least welcome when we're most sure we know what we're talking about. There's good and there's evil. There's light and dark. There's truth and lies. It could not be more clear. And you could not be listening to me less. And we should expect our perspective to be discounted. People want to believe what they want to believe. They want to listen to experts. They want to find people who will agree with what they've already decided they want to think. But notice what Paul does. He offers his perspective anyway. Does he expect the centurion to listen? Probably not. But because he did, and even though the centurion blew him off, same guy later ends up being his biggest defender. In fact, ends up saving his life. Paul didn't share 
his ideas about how to reach the destination because he thought people would listen. He shared because he had the chance. We can't weigh whether or not we think people will listen to what we have to say about how they can reach safety in Jesus. We can't, we can't weigh whether or not to share that based on whether we think that they're going to listen. We share it because we have a chance to share it. Even so, verse 13 to 20, Paul did what he was called to do. He spoke up, he spoke out. Storms still happened, even though Paul was obedient. Did everything right, which could have bummed him out. God, you said you were going to get me to Rome. I've done everything you asked. What are these storms? Did I miss something? Did you miss something? Paul, as far as we know, didn't ask any of that. Because after 25 years of ministry, he knew better than anyone, we can be perfectly obedient to the Lord, fully committed to the cause of Christ, and still find ourselves in a dark place, far from land, with water coming over the rail. When it does, Paul doesn't take it personally. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, woe is me. He doesn't say, where are you? He knows that it doesn't mean God changed his mind or that he did anything wrong, or that God promises aren't sure. He knows that in this life, storms happen. And he knows that when they do, he's got a choice. To shout at the wind, to rage back at the waves, or to look for an opportunity. The storms in this life, verses 21 to 25, the storms in this life have a tendency to give us the greatest opportunities that we have to speak to our fellow passengers our fellow sojourners. Because when, isn't it true? When someone's desperate, at the end of their own resources, no more moves left on the board, isn't that when they're most willing to listen? Isn't that when we're most willing to listen? Paul sees that opportunity to say, here's how you can be saved. And i got to point this out, verse 26. How did he tell them they could be saved? By standing on a really big rock. The key in the moment is, 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 is we need to be like Paul and we need to be standing on the rock ourselves. Can't share hope that we don't have. When opportunity comes to speak words of hope to a desperate heart, we need to already be in a place where we have hope. We can't say, okay, wait here, I'm going to go get some hope and then I'm going to come back and share it with... No. We need to be letting the Lord already be speaking words of encouragement to our heart like Paul was in verse 23. Paul's response to the storm wasn't to despair, it was to seek the Lord who answered, verse 23, who encouraged him, who prepared him. So when the opportunity came, verse 25, Paul was able to say, I'm going to make it through this storm. I know that. God has promised me. And you can too if you believe what God has told me. I've prayed for you. And God has made provision for you. You just have to believe. Now the thing is, verse 27 to 30, nothing more dangerous than a drowning man, right? Even when we're desperate, human nature can be more desperate, can still be scratching and clawing and fighting, trying to find a way to save itself. I can still get out of this. I can. I can do this. And it's tempting in those moments where we've shared a way of escape. We've offered, hey, this is how you can be rescued. His name is Jesus. And people say, no, 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 I, 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 I can still get out of this. Fine, die in the storm. That's our human nature, right? Our human nature pushes us in the same selfish direction that's pushing them. You don't want to listen to me? Fine, suffer. That'll be my revenge. But Paul doesn't go there. Verse 31 and 32, he lets his spiritual nature override his human nature. Even as people are ignoring him and, and, and endangering him, he's still on message. And he's on message speaking the truth in love. He's direct and gentle. Just like we need to be. We need to be kind and blunt, all, all of the, in the same message. As we tell people, there is exactly one shelter from the perfect storm you're in, the storm of sin and death and Satan. One shelter, his name is Jesus. No, no matter how much they're trying to hurt us. Hurting people hurt people. 
And someone who's gotten to a point where they're willing to hear the gospel is probably hurting, and they're probably not very nice. We can't respond to anger with anger. We can't answer evil with evil. Hurting people hurt people, but loving people have got to love people. Paul was never off message. He was never too preoccupied with his own situation to speak into other people's lives. And more than that, verses 33, 34, 35, he was always asking God to to sensitize him, supernaturally open his eyes to the opportunities, the critical moments to speak and to show people that he believed in a God who was greater than the storm. How did he do that? He said, verse 34, that he believed God's promises But he also demonstrated it, verse 35. He thanked God for deliverance that hadn't happened yet. He let his gratitude declare the gospel. I was talking to Robbie and Diane recently. Robbie led worship last month. And I think most of us know he's dealing with with colon cancer. And and the things have been going in a a not great direction. This scan is worse than that scan. This chemo didn't do what it was supposed to. But, but they, they shared a really cool testimony. They're freaking all of the people on their care team out. Absolutely freaking them out. Because the worse the news gets, the more peaceful they get. And, and nurses come in, and, and they're wiping away tears for the news that they have to give. And Robbie's saying, well, look, the Lord is going to heal me, or he's going to heal me. <laughs> and, and that dissonance is messing with people's brain. Their gratitude for God's love and graciousness, their confidence that God will safely deliver them into his arms, whatever the route, is preaching the gospel. Crew and the passenger, verse 36, they're touched by Paul's words, I think even more so by his example, and as a result, verse 37 and 38, their priorities change. They toss the wheat, literally threw it overboard. Because that's what happens when we put our trust in God. Complete realignment of our priorities, right? And if this were a script for a Hollywood movie, the storm would miraculously cease, the waters would flatten, the sun would come out, it'd be smooth sailing all the way to Rome, and that's not how the world works. Even for people trusting in God's promises, that's not how the world works. Even with the entire ship, I think it's telling that Luke picks that time to tell us it's 276 people. With all 276 trusting God, they still get stuck. Verse 39 to 42, the ship gets wedged. It's breaking up. And people who a moment ago were praising Paul and trusting God are now turning on Paul and abandoning God. Which isn't that unusual for new believers. You've encountered people who get saved and they, they, they expect God to instantly solve all of their problems. Maybe you were that person. Okay, I've put my trust in Jesus. My life should be better now. And, and, and sometimes people get really frustrated and even blame the person who led them to the Lord when, when, when that doesn't happen. But, but notice as we wrap up, notice God's faithfulness. Verse 43, his faithfulness now not just to Paul, but to the entire ship's complement. All the people that Paul had prayed for and God had granted him. All of the people that Paul had prayed for and that God had determined to save. Even though they're confused and discouraged and frustrated and really in the flesh... God is faithful. People are behaving badly. God still keeps his promises. They can't send themselves out of safety. Eternal safety. The fact that people didn't understand what was going on, the badly misunderstood what was going on, they weren't worshipful, they weren't prayerful, they weren't particularly spiritual. None of it changed who God was. None of it changed God's mind. People's action, even people's sin, didn't change what God had promised to do. And God did what he promised to do. He kept them safe. He brought them to the destination he said he would. It's the Alistair Begg illustration, the the thief on the cross, who knew nothing of theology. He didn't know soteriology, certainly didn't know eschatology. What did he know? The guy in the middle cross said I could come. (laughs) Because God keeps his promises. 
I get worried when I run an extended metaphor like this, which is probably why I haven't done it in a while, because I, I worry I'm going to lose people on the way, because not everybody's brain works like this. But, but, I, but I hope you were able to follow this one. Paul's journey to Rome and God's promise to deliver him safely, our journey to heaven, God's promise to deliver us safely. The way that Paul responded by trying to, to, to see everybody journeying with him also arrive safely. Our opportunity to see those sojourning, us, sojourning with us in this life reach God's arms safely. And, 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 and if you see that, then I'm going to ask you to see one more thing as we close. On a long list of things Paul was doing on his journey, I think we got to 12, which is too many, but on a long list of things that Paul was doing on his journey, what wasn't he doing? What's conspicuous by its absence? He wasn't predicting how long the journey was going to take. He wasn't wielding a map and a sextant trying to figure out when the journey was going to end. He wasn't trying to suss out what chain of events it was going to take to finally get him to Rome. He knew he was going to Rome. He knew he would get to Rome. How he got there, when he got there, that was up to God. He wasn't trying to forecast his journey. He knew certain things about it, like we know certain things about our journey. God has shown him certain things about it, like God has shown us certain things about our journey. But he wasn't striving to try to know more than God had shown him. He wasn't striving to know the things that Jesus tells us that the Father reserves for his own understanding, and neither should we. Paul wasn't trying to conjure up a roadmap for the journey. What he was doing, if you take all 12 of those points together, he was trying to use his journey to be a witness, to be a worshiper, to share truth, to offer hope, and to bring as many people as he could safely to that destination with him. And, and so should we, family. I love prophecy. But the purpose of prophecy is to point us to Jesus. If we do that, then we will remember. The Word of God will remind us that we're here for the exact same reason to point people to Jesus. Until He does return. And we don't know when that will be. Father, we, we thank You for the gift of not knowing. Because if we accept that gift, if we receive it, if we understand it, it's liberating. Because in not having to scrutinize the, the, the horizon, in not having to try to see around a corner, we're free to do the thing you have asked us to do, to preach the gospel, to make disciples. Lord, order our thoughts. Give us rest in believing that the God who saved us will see us safely to his arms and use us, Lord, to bring as many people with us as we can.